0: Tonight's final session of The Sins We Tolerate is being taught by three different speakers, David Miller, Omar Edwards, and Carrie Robinson. The first section is The Sin of Judgmentalism with David Miller teaching. What a joy it is to uh, be with you unexpectedly tonight, teaching. And what a joy it is to go first. I feel a little bit like uh, Isaac did in Genesis 4 when he was laying down on his dad's altar about to be killed. Looking around thinking, anybody else? We got another substitute. Could anybody else do this? A little bit what I feel like today. Let's turn to uh, Romans 14 in the uh series that we've been in and in the the book that we have mentioned uh throughout this series respectable sins by jerry bridges um jerry gives an illustration that is a perfect example of judgmentalism which is the sin that i'm going to be addressing uh today and i i just i just want to share this illustration to sort of get our mental juices thinking in this direction about this particular sin um and so here's the, here's the illustration that, that Jerry uses. He says, imagine a Christian who doesn't drive a pickup truck going up to another Christian, like me, by the way, who does drive a pickup truck and says to that person, Jesus would never drive a pickup truck. Now, first of all, that statement is false because there's plenty of places in the South where you can't even get into the church parking lot without a pickup truck. I know that firsthand. But it's also a judgmental statement because, well, not because Jesus would or wouldn't drive a pickup truck. I believe that he would drive a pickup truck, of course. But that's not the point. It's a judgmental statement because it's based on personal preference. And we know that driving a pickup truck is not declared as sin in the Bible, right? And not driving a pickup truck is not regarded as a virtue in the Bible. So the scripture is silent about driving a pickup. Can we agree on that tonight, brothers and sisters? Yes. So as a result, If the scripture's silent about it, it's not a behavior that we can judge. See, here's the thing. Sin is defined by God in the scriptures. We don't get to define sin. God defines sin. You may remember the definition of sin that I used a few weeks ago. Sin is a transgression of the law of God. Very simple definition. This transgression of the law of God. See, when we try to define sin, what we end up doing is we either downplay what God actually said, sort of like Satan did in Genesis chapter three, or we end up adding to what God said like Eve did in the garden in Genesis chapter three. So what we do is, is we have a tendency to either make it license or legalism if we try to redefine sin. And both of those tendencies are ripe for judgmental attitudes to flourish in the body of Christ. And that's not a good thing, brothers and sisters. We must watch our lives carefully and here in the body of Christ, we've got to be intentional about how we handle our relationships with one another, particularly in, in regard to judging one another. And that's what Romans 14 is all about. This chapter, which is what I'll just kind of touch on tonight, applies the implications of the gospel to our relationships with one another in a local church. So let me ask you a question. In this room, do we all agree on everything? Answer? No, of course not. If it's cold in here to you, raise your hand. If it's not cold enough for you in here, raise your hand. Yeah, we don't agree on the setting on the thermostat, do we? But we also don't agree on the style of music that we like. We also don't agree on the ministry that we serve in. We also don't agree on what we wear or our preferred Bible translation or our eschatological position. And the list is a long one. We could keep going. There's a lot of things that we don't agree on. But here at McGregor, we talk a lot about uh, about being siblings with one another in the body of Christ. As members of this church, we are of the same family together, and that matters more, right? But see, here's the reality. Potentially, you and I can disagree more on things than we actually agree on. So the challenge for us, like so many other things in our Christian walk, is living with each other in a local church by grace, not by judging one another. And if this chapter, if Romans 14 had a thesis to it, I believe it would be this that in the body of christ we can disagree agreeably in a manner that honors christ and guards ourselves against the sin of judgmentalism i'll say that again in the body of christ we can disagree agreeably in a manner that honors christ and it guards us against the sin of judgmentalism now i want to give a warning before we actually read this part of this chapter. This is one of those passages where I want you to not worry about everybody else as you're studying this passage tonight. Because some of you are gonna be tempted as we study this to say, oh, this would be so good if so-and-so were here to hear this, right? (laughs) Or or you would say, oh, this is just what so-and-so needs. Friends, Romans 14 is introspective when we read it. And and so when David Miller reads it, I need to evaluate one person. And who is that? Myself. Same with you. You're not going to be able to do that tonight if you're constantly thinking about so-and-so that really needs to hear this. Friends, tonight you are so-and-so, okay? So am I. And every single one of us has judged another person unfairly at one time or another in our Christian walk. So let's read Romans 14, first 12 verses is all we're going to deal with. Apostle Paul says this As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, I wish I had time to deal with the whole chapter, but I don't, yet right off the bat here, there's something we don't need to miss. And that something is a foundational assumption that Paul has baked into this passage because this passage makes clear something foundational about those who follow Christ. And that assumption is this, brace yourself, we will disagree with each other in the body of Christ. It's just true. This is Paul's baseline argument here. Verse one, he states right up front, look at it with me in your Bibles. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. There's a, there's a disagreement in the Roman church here, and, and Paul is describing something that is not a doctrinal matter, but it's a matter of opinion. That's real important, we catch that. It's a a matter of personal preference that can lead to a quarrel. The word that Paul's using there for quarrel means a contentious dispute. And So when he says, for the one who is weak in faith, what he's doing there is he's reminding us that every church has believers at different levels of maturity in that same church. There are those who are younger and weaker than I am in their faith. And there are those who are older and stronger than I am in their faith. And that's true for every single person in this room. It is part of the amazing diversity God gives to his church. And and what Paul does in this chapter is he spells out a couple of disputable matters that, um, that he illustrates in the body of Christ in what Rome was actually dealing with at that time. And and those disputable matters mean that not only will we disagree with each other, but we can disagree agreeably with each other. That's what he's showing us here. And in effect, not judge each other. That's a sin that we want to remain abstinent of, if you will. So what is a disputable matter? Let's talk about that first as we jump into this. A disputable matter is where Christians disagree about personal practices, you could say. The things that the scripture does not say are sin. These can be gray areas where God doesn't explicitly condemn something as a sin. And so it falls into the category of Christian liberty. For those weaker than me in the faith, I'm supposed to accept the weaker brother. Uh, And I don't look down on them because of an area in their life that's a disputable matter. I have to refrain from that. See, a disputable matter is where sincere Christians disagree about things that the scripture remains silent about. It's when somebody says, well, I just can't do that as a matter of good conscience. It's not explicit in the scripture, but I just can't do that in good conscience. But whatever practice or activity that they're referring to is, is something that you may actually have no problem doing. It may not bother you at all. You may not have a conscience that goes against that. But that weaker brother doesn't give themselves to participate in that particular activity. And friends, that's the moment right there where there's an opportunity for us to judge one another in the local church. And when we do that, sin blossoms in the church. Two examples that Paul gives here in Romans 14 is a difference of opinion about food and drink and then a difference of opinion about days, particularly significant days. See, in the Roman church, there were members of that church who had left the paganism of rome and has now gotten saved and they now follow christ that's that's group number one that's in that church but there's another group group number two were members of that church who were saved out of a jewish background they had come from judaism and they now follow christ so group number one was saved out of paganism group number 2 was saved out of Judaism and God has put them together in the same local church for his glory. That's what he does and he still does that today. So in verse 2 Paul starts with food. Look at it. He says one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only what Yeah, this isn't a this isn't about veganism or being a vegetarian, so don't y'all some of y'all need to relax. Um, But there is one likely scenario here in that church that those from a Gentile background saw those from a Jewish background eating meat sacrificed that had been sacrificed to their old pagan idols and they couldn't believe it. These new Gentile believers had turned from the worship of those idols, praise God. And they had left all that behind because God had saved them. So much so that when they went into the market, they were not about to even buy the meat that had previously been sacrificed to idols, much less eat it. And on the other hand, the believers in the church in Rome that were saved out of a Jewish background, well, they saw the discounted meat and they bought it and they ate it and it didn't matter to them that it had been previously sacrificed to idols. Now, if that was the scenario at that time, can you see how that scenario can tempt both groups into judging one another? Just a minefield of temptation. But here's the other possible scenario, and that is that those who were saved out of Judaism, well, we know they came from a long tradition of not eating meat sacrificed to idols because of what the old testament taught the israelites about not associating with those nations and those nations practices who worshiped idols so they may have been the ones who said we're not going to eat that meat and the gentile converts may have been the ones holding a, a plate of pork ribs saying there's nothing wrong with this paul doesn't tell us here who's in which camp. He just tells us that there's two camps in this church. But what may surprise some of you is that neither of them was wrong. Neither of them was in sin holding to their particular position. See, in 1 Corinthians 8, the apostle Paul had already dealt with the issue of meat sacrifice to idols. And in 1 Corinthians 8, he does not declare that eating that kind of meat is sinful but he also doesn't command christians that they must eat meat sacrificed to idols so again it's a matter of christian liberty the christian has the freedom to either eat that meat or not eat that meat see disputable matters are not about behavior that's clearly condemned in the scriptures disputable matters are about preferences And personal practices and so when two Christians disagree about a preference or a personal practice that is not condemned in Scripture how should we respond to those disputable matters that's what verse 3 is all about look at it with me in verse 3 he says let no one let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let the one who abstains not pass judgment on the one who eats for god has welcomed him see brothers and sisters it is possible to disagree agreeably and not give in to the sin of judging one another over a preferential matter well yeah pastor david but they're wrong in their position Verse four, look at it with me. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. See, when you and I in the same local body of Christ, when we discuss or debate non-moral preferences, this question in verse four reminds us that we are not the master of the other person we're in a conversation with. We're not their master. Who is their master? Jesus is their master. So we don't judge each other on the differences between our non-moral preferences. We disagree agreeably and we leave the final call to Christ because he is the one who has provided the grace that's required for you and I to disagree agreeably. Now, again, I want to reiterate something clear when we refer to disputable matters like these that are being talked about here. We're not talking about things like the resurrection of Christ or the triune God or the the incarnation, which includes the full deity of Jesus and the full humanity of Jesus. That's not what we're talking about, nor are we talking about sins like we've talked about in this series. Uh, like anxiety or ungodliness or impatience or anger. The scripture is clear about all of those things and many more sins that would prevent us from inheriting the kingdom of God if we persisted in them. So they're not disputable matters. And by the way, friends, practices that are clearly condemned as sin in the Bible, those are something that we can and should call each other out on. That's that's the premise of Matthew 18 and biblical church discipline. God's word makes provision for reconciliation. He makes it possible to deal with sin when you and I sin against each other. So in that sense, we do judge one another because God's word is already clear about those sins. But that's not Romans 14. That's not what Romans 14 is talking about. These are disputable matters, non-moral preferences like drinking alcohol, dancing, who you vote for, playing the lottery, smoking, R-rated movies, the use of drums in a church. And again, I could go on and on and on, but I won't. A disputable matter is not not sinful in and of itself, but it may become sinful for the person who is holding in their own conscience. That's the important piece of it, friends. If it becomes sinful for an individual because of their own conscience, and that conscience can be largely influenced by their own history or their background, For example, some of us in here won't touch alcohol, and yet the Bible does not prohibit drinking alcohol. The Bible does make it clear that drunkenness is a sin, and some of you were big partiers before God saved you. So because God has saved you, you look at that and you say, I'm never gonna touch that again, which is right in your conscience. You've decided you're not gonna go back to that anymore. Because for you, if you did that, it would be you committing a compromising sin. But for others of us who, you don't mind having a drink now and then, but you are very aware of the danger of being, becoming drunk. You know that's a sin, so you limit yourself, and as a result, you refrain from the sin of drunkenness. Now, everyone in here is probably in one of those two camps. So can you already see how tempting it is for us to judge other people who have a different view on that particular matter? Somebody holding the opposite view in this body of Christ is not the enemy. They're your brother or sister in Christ. That's the same temptation that was going on in Rome at this time. And that's just the first example. Paul gives another example in verse five. And look at what it was about. He says, verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced uh, in his own mind. He's talking about days. Those in the church at Rome, saved out of a Jewish background, surprise, surprise, were fond of observing Jewish days that were important to them. And And they couldn't believe that the Gentile Christians didn't really care about those things. Days like Passover and the Sabbath. But you know what's funny? Each side was mad at the other because of the other's perceived lack of conviction on the matter. Sound familiar? It's what happens in the church today. Paul says it ought not be this way, brothers and sisters. It's possible for us to agree, uh, for us to disagree in an agreeable fashion. Today, it's not just about meat and days. It's also about other stuff. Celebrating Halloween. Christians have different perspectives on that. Celebrating Christmas. Christians have different perspectives on that. The music we listen to. Do you agree with this Bible teacher or do you not? Do you recycle or do you not? Are you vegan, vegetarian, or carnivore? It's it's dizzying, actually, to think about all the different things. These are all preferential things that Satan would love for you and I to judge each other about. But they are non-moral, disputable matters. And sadly, some of us get really fired up when somebody else disagrees with us on issues like that because we think they're biblical essentials when all they are in reality is preferences. Really, really important that you and I understand the difference between a conviction of what's explicitly stated in the Bible and what's merely a preference. See, brothers and sisters, it's important that you and I understand why we have been put together as a church family. We've been put in here together to help sanctify one another. God uses you in my life to help sanctify me. And God uses me, I hope and pray in your life to help sanctify you. That's what relationships are all about. And when potential conflict comes in, the Lord is honored and glorified as we work through those conflicts and we learn and practice how to disagree with each other in an agreeable way. Judgmentalism is dangerous. There's no doubt about that. It's something that we must pay attention to. And in the body of Christ, we're to remind each other of the judgments that God has already made about his word that are sin, those clear transgressions of the law. But with disputable matters, non-moral preferences, we don't judge one another. We refrain from committing that sin only by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's essential for us as Christians living life together to realize that we can have differing positions on disputable matters. And in those relationships, by God's grace, we can respectably disagree in an agreeable fashion. Amen. This next section is the sins of envy, jealousy, and related
1: sins taught by Omar Edwards. As Pastor David was saying, uh, Just to let you know, in the New Testament, the Bible mentions meat three times more than it does vegetables, so eat biblically. (laughs) Um, Envy and jealousy. Envy and jealousy. We're going to cover today, we're going to definitely cover envy and jealousy. We may get to competitiveness and controlling. I don't know if we'll have time, but that's what we're going to try, and then we'll discuss some root causes. So let's jump right in. Envy and jealousy, let's start with some definitions. Envy is the painful feeling of wanting what someone else has, like attributes or possessions. I'll repeat that, the painful feeling of wanting what someone else has. Jealousy is the feeling of being threatened, protective, or fearful of losing one's position or situation to someone else. Again the feeling of being threatened, protective or fearful of losing one's position or situation to someone else. Now, envy and jealousy are very similar. Um, and if we were to use it, if you were to use it to describe a situation or someone, you would probably say it's the same thing. Envy, Right, if I said, uh, if I, said uh, I was envious or jealous of so-and-so or such-and-such, you'd, you'd understand what I was saying, but there is a distinction. There's a couple of distinctions, actually. Uh, First, envy desires what one does not have. If I'm envious, I am desirous, I am covetous of something that I do not have. Something I see, something I like, something I desire, but it is not mine. But I want it painfully. I want it and it causes me angst. It causes me frustration because I do not have that which I desire. Jealousy, on the other hand, protects, sinfully, what I do have. It creates this uh, state of mind that I have to vigorously defend something that I possess, or someone that I'm in a relationship with, or some position or job that I may have. And so, that's one distinction. Second distinction is that um, envy requires two people the envious person and the object of that envy, while jealousy requires three. It requires the person who is jealous, it requires the object of that jealousy, and it requires an outside influence, whether it be someone threatening a relationship or whether it be someone working at a company. I've been in my position for 20 years, and now they hired a a 25-year-old to do the same job I do at half the price jealousy so it takes envy is something i do not have and it's and it's really just that one object and jealousy is about something i do have that i'm a, that i'm afraid that some outside force some outside person is going to take what i have following all right now what is the problem with these sins well first off it is a very low view of god's providence what is god's providence Well, the short definition is, providence is God's sovereignty in action. God has the power and authority to do as he pleases. He has a perfect plan, that is sovereignty. Providence is when God puts that plan into motion. It's what he does in response to his plan and will. John Piper, in this book, puts it this way. Providence carries his plans into action and guides all things toward his ultimate goal and leads to the final consummation. So providence is God's will in action. And so we want God, when we're dealing with envy or we're dealing with jealousy, we want what God has not allowed us to have. He may have not blessed us with the opportunity or an opportunity to study or to work, or to travel, or to have a home, or to afford this, or to afford the other thing, to afford a boat maybe, or to, or to minister in a certain capacity. God may have not allowed that at this point in time, but yet I desire it now. Yet I want it now, at this moment. At this point in my life, that's what I want. That's envy. That's, that's, that's me saying to God's providence, your providence is wrong. Your idea of sovereignty, God, your idea of how you apply your plan is wrong. Whew, that's heavy. Right? And if you, so I don't have too much time to get into that, but if you do want to get more into that, I have This book, Providence by John Piper, I have two of them, and uh, if you want one and you're really gonna study it and read it, please see me, I'll, I'll, I'll have it for you at the table. Next thing, second, what is the problem with the sins of envy and jealousy? Those sins are a low view of God's provision. A low view of God's provision. What is God's provision? Basically, it's what he's given us. It's what he has provided to each and every one of us. Question is, has God not given us enough? Do we not have enough? Are you, am I, are we not worth more than the grass? Or the flowers? Or the birds that Jesus mentions in Matthew 6? Are are we not better than that? Does God not have us in higher esteem than those things? Who did God die, who did Jesus die for? It wasn't the grass, and it wasn't the flowers, and it wasn't the birds, right? God shows his love for us in this, that what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for who? For us. He is sufficient, and he has provided for us sufficiently. Or have we forgotten Paul's counsel in these matters? Philippians 4, 11 through 13. And then I'm going to throw in verse 19. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is that verse applied correctly. In God's provision. He has given us what we need. He may have given you more. Al Green over there has a boat. That's awesome. I don't have a boat. That's awesome too. I praise God for his boat. And if I ever have the chance to have a boat, praise god i'll have one but if not god has given me abundantly more than what i need in november of 2020 i bought i purchased the home first time this poor kid from the bronx who had nothing all his life who didn't know how to manage a dollar until his 30s finally moved to florida and God opens a door for me to purchase a home when? Right after the pandemic, when the real estate market opened, interest rates were sub three. I got 16 grand back on the home, $9,000 toward closing. I closed November 23rd. I walked in. I stepped on the, the driveway November 24th. And I remember passing by a home as we drove by and I saw it. No, I think it was online. And I saw it. I was like, wow. When I get to my house, I said, I don't have what I just saw in that picture. I hadn't even stepped into my own house yet. And I'm already thinking of what I don't have. That is the corruption, that is the the vileness of our brokenness, of our sinfulness. That we take his provision for granted and we have such a low view of it when I should have been dancing and crying that God had in a in a miraculous way, if you knew the story, in a miraculous way provided me this opportunity. Envy and jealousy is a sin, thirdly, because it embraces satanic wisdom. Envy and jealousy were Satan's sins. James three fourteen through 16, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It embraces satanic wisdom. It's been, it's been the devil's sin since the beginning, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, what does it tell us? I'm not gonna read it, it's, 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 the, it's the message to the king of Babylon, but in it we see a condemnation of Satan, verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud and I will make myself like the most high. Envy, jealousy, sin number one. That is Satan's sin. Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen says this. because you're corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor to this same individual here. This has been Satan's sin from the beginning. And when we do that, we embrace satanic wisdom. And third, the problem with envy and jealousy is that jealousy in relationships is a lie. It's a lie of Satan. I'll explain why in a second. Jealousy in our relationships tells our spouse, tells us, excuse me, that our spouse's interests are elsewhere whether they are or not. Jealousy and envy tell us that we are unable to forgive those who have sinned against us, whether it is in our current relationship or past one that still has control over us. Jealousy is a monster. It breeds unforgiveness. Correction. It it shows, it reveals unforgiveness. It breaks down the beauty of a relationship. It breaks down the trust and the love within, within two, with, between two people. It tells us that God is unable to redeem the sin of another who sinned against us. There are, some, there, there are some marriages in here, some spouses that are, that, are, that are making their spouse suffer for what someone did to them 30 years ago in a completely different relationship. I won't say raise your hand if you know. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't need, we don't need any of that here. We're here to reconcile, right? This is a, this is a, a, a stare in the mirror moment as a husband, as a wife, stare in the mirror and say, is this me? Am I harming what God has given me, this beautiful thing that God has given me because of some bondage I have that I, that, 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 that I have not acknowledged, some issue that I have not acknowledged and I have not been willing to deal with face-to-face in prayer and submit it to God so that he would heal me. Jealousy leads us to respond foolishly. (laughs) I have stories. I was a pastor for 14 years in New York. I got some jealousy stories. I don't have time to share them. I'll join join Carrie in the Beyond the Notes. (laughs) I'm kidding. There will be no Beyond the Notes. Next couple sins are competitive and, excuse me, competitiveness and controlling. And we'll try to get to that. Competitiveness, I don't want to get in trouble here. I know there's a bunch of SEC football fans in the house. But there is healthy competition. I'm not advocating for participation trophies and ribbons for all participants. I, I, I am an advocate of the opposite. You lose, you lose. Um, but there is sinful competition. What does that look like? Sinful competition looks like A father berating his kid because he dropped the foul ball. A coach embarrassing and humiliating his player in front of all the fans and all the people out there because he didn't understand the play. Hurting others in order to win. I remember in high school, there was a point in time where I was very light on my feet. And I used to play volleyball. And so we were playing volleyball, co-ed, high school. Nothing on the line, just pride. And I, it was, we had about a minute left, my teacher was about to blow the whistle, and the score was tied, and we couldn't have that now. Until the ball goes up, it's above the net. Now the net, those of you who know, the volleyball net is, 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 is three-eighths inches less than eight feet. And I jumped up there, and I got up, and as I'm jumping, there's this skinny little girl on the other side, and she's watching me jump up, and out of the corner of my eye, I see her quivering in fear. And I jump up, the ball is right over the net, my arm is like this, and I hear my gym teacher, don't do it! That ball bounced so high off her face, it hit the ceiling. I'm exaggerating. Not about the face, about the, it, it was pretty close. But I walked away, man, we won. The whistle blew, <laughs> and we won. She's over there sitting on the floor crying. I'm walking away, high-fiving. Yeah, you saw that? Sinful competitiveness. It looks like cheating in order to win. It looks like subtle and quiet resentment. It looks like having your healthy son get Tommy John surgery just so that he can throw stronger at 15 for the scouts. Sinful competitiveness. Then there's this controlling behavior. We all know what that looks like. We dominate by force, using anger, manipulation, and coercion. And manipulation is a bad thing. Some of us have been subject to it for so long or have done it for so long, we don't even realize how sinful it is. Galatians 4. Paul calls out the manipulation of the false teachers. This is what he says, he says, says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. He's dealing with their manipulation in that sentence, in that verse. Don't be a manipulator. Let's not be manipulative in our practices so we can have the control. Why is it a problem? because it points to a bloated self sense of self and robs God of his glory. Wanting to control, wanting to compete and win at no, at all costs, it's about what I want, how I want, where I want, what 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 I want and, and when I want it and where I want it. It's about me, a bloated self sense of self Stealing the glory away from God. It's an act of sinful pride and arrogance. And we should remember Peter's warning in 1 Peter 5.5 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It disobeys the commandment to love and to submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21. So how do we deal with this? Well, we deal with this four ways. First, we deal with it honestly. <laughs> we have to be honest about where we are with these particular sins, and all of them for that matter. Second, we deal with them biblically. Once we recognize, when we can look at ourselves in the mirror and understand where I, where I fall in regard to these sins, then I go to scripture to hear what God has to say and in his word jesus has said plenty about all these things we've heard this for the past six weeks he has said plenty what is god saying about this these respectable sins or these sins we tolerate reasonable was the word right but these reasonable sins that 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 we have tolerated what is god saying What has he told us over the past six weeks? What does the rest of God's great counsel tell us about our condition? I know I have a problem. I know I have a sin that I have to deal with. I'm going to deal with it biblically. And when I understand what God says, I'm going to take it in prayer. Lord, your word says this about me. Here I am. Here I am repenting of this situation, of this problem I have. Fourthly, I hold on to God's grace, man. I grab on to his grace and I recognize that he is faithful when I am not. That he loves me in spite, that he has been faithful to me in spite of my many failures and many infidelities and many hiccups and many stumbles. He is faithful. And then to help the cause, I seek help from my brothers and sisters. I seek accountability from mature believers, prayerful believers, wise believers, biblical believers that can help me navigate this process of healing and restoration. That's how we deal with these sins. This last section
0: is the sins of the tongue taught by Carrie Robinson.
2: We've been discussing for the past six weeks these sins we tolerate. Uh, Have you even thought about uh, that phrase, sins we tolerate? You know, uh, should we as followers of Christ that are committed to the word of God tolerate sin in our life? Uh, But the reality is, you know, there are these things, sins, uh, that we tend to just dismiss as, oh, that's no big deal. You know, it's not that big big of a deal. There are other things, and other people have problems that are so much bigger than mine, right? Those are the sins, those are the biggies, those are the problems, and I don't have them. As uh, Pastor Dave and Omar were speaking, and I thought about the sin of judgmentalism and the sins of envy and jealousy, and then uh, my topic is the sins of the tongue, I thought about how these sins creep into the church and hurt the body of Christ. Because these things, these sins, are things that we do to one another, aren't they? Oftentimes. Um, So, when you think of sins of the tongue, what's the first thing that jumps out to you as one of those tolerated sins? is what? Gossip, Gossip, right? And we don't even, we we not only think of it as a sin we tolerate, obviously you identified it pretty quickly, uh, gossip, but we say, why don't you pray for my brother or sister? (laughs) Did you know what's going on in their life? And then X, Y, Z. You know, we even camouflage it in a spiritual tone of let's pray for them, but really what we're doing is we're gossiping. You know, we want somebody to know something about someone, maybe to make us feel better in our own life, with our own life. Um, But sins sins of the tongue consist of things like gossip, lying, slander, critical speech, even when it's true. Harsh words, insult, sarcasm, and ridicule. Proverbs gives us some 60 warnings about the proper use of the tongue. Jesus in Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word. Wow. Do we live that way? Every careless word, we will give an account. James three is probably the most known and talked about um, passage of scripture on the tongue and we're going to read it. So if you have your Bible, or your app, you want to turn to James three, we're going to read it. It says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is the perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring bring forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a Grapevine produce figs, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The power of the tongue. Years ago, it's actually, um, a- after Mark and I discussed this yesterday, uh, mid-morning, um, and I started reading, uh, I was reminded that when I was in college, uh, I stumbled across a passage of scripture in Ephesians four twenty nine. Uh, it was a season in my life. Now, I know that you're going to be extremely shocked and surprised and all of those other adjectives to go along with it, but I was in college and I was struggling with a uh, Baptist school, Christian, felt called to ministry as a high school student, all of that, but yet I struggle with grasping or accepting the reality that foul language could not be a part of a believer's life. I mean, they're just words, right? They're just words, uh, and I know that no one in here has ever wrestled with foul language being a problem, right? Um, I'm confident of that. It probably this, we could probably stop now because we really don't pro- have any problems with words, do we? The sins we tolerate, you know, the sins of the tongue. Um, but anyway, so I, I I came across this Ephesians 4:29 passage, and it says, "Let no corrupt Come out of your mouth, but only such is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And it and it grabbed me um, as a 20, 21 year old young man that was struggling with not always having a clean mouth. And I thought, let no corrupt nothing, corrupt. Paul's giving a command. No corrupt, filthy, coarse talk come out of your mouth. Only what is good for the building up. And I really understood how important it is to let everything that comes out of our mouth be words of edification. Now, some of you in here recognize that I'm not 20 some years old anymore. It's been a long time of dealing with this passage of scripture. And to James's point, I still haven't mastered it. The tongue is a powerful beast. It's hard to really get control of. Paul gives us two guidelines in Ephesians 4.21. He says, the speech should be beneficial. The words that come out of our mouths should be beneficial to one another. It should build one another up. And it should fit the occasion. And I think part of that fitting the occasion is the appropriateness of timing and place. So let's look at these quickly. The gossip, sins of the tongue, gossip, spreading unfavorable information about somebody else, even if it's true. Gossip, talking about somebody else. And we in the church like to do that. Indulging gossip seems to feed our own ego oftentimes, especially if we know something about somebody that nobody else knows. For us to share that information somehow makes us feel better. But ask ourselves, will this this information build the body of Christ up? Does it encourage one another? Second sin of the tongue is slander. Making a false statement or misrepresentation about another which damages the person's credibility or reputation, slander. Saying things maybe that we think, we don't know it to be true, but maybe we think it's true. And so we just spit that out about somebody else without consciousness or regard to how that's going to impact that person's reputation. I was thinking we're in a crazy political season, but some of our politicians claim to be believers. And then you see these ads that are just so demeaning and critical and hateful. Well, that's kind of that slanderous type of tone. Believers should not be slandering other people. We slander when we ascribe wrong motives to people. When we think that we know more than we know, we slander. I think one of the ways believers slanders openly is when we comment about another believer without good knowledge. You know, we take bits and pieces of information that we know and we share that information. We we slander a person's reputation or, or integrity. And ultimately, slander is a form of lying. Number three is critical speech. Negative comments about somebody that may be true but doesn't need to be said. Uh, Some of us really have a hard time not saying what we know. But not everything we know needs to be shared. Ask ourselves, is it kind? Is it helpful? Is it encouraging? negative speeches, harsh, sarcasm, insults, ridicule, all these negative elements of our tongue, putting down and humiliating others, hurting somebody is not of God. I was in conversation with a, a young man recently who has a few tattoos and he was at a family event and one of his family members, this young man claims to be a believer. This family member claimed to be a believer. Family member told this young man, 20, early 20s, says you're going to hell because of your tattoos. Harsh words. Do you think that that young man will ever forget those words? No, never. Are the words true? No. Does the young man know those words are not true? Yeah, he knows it. But the sting of words—how powerful they are! You know, there, you've heard the the saying, "Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt me." It's a lie. Words hurt. Words are powerful. Matthew 12, 34 says, you brought vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. The issue's in the heart, isn't it? Ultimately, the issue is the heart. So, in conclusion, Psalms 19, 14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. If the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, are acceptable in God's sight, then the words that come out of my mouth are edifying, encouraging, building one another up. Three ways to control the tongue. Every thought needs to be taken taken into consideration. Every thought that comes into our brain does not need to be expressed. There are a lot of things that we say that would be better left unsaid, right? Controlling the tongue is such a difficult thing to do. Proverbs 10 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I have never gotten in trouble for keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> but I have let words slip out of my mouth that I regret. Right? Not every thought needs to be expressed. Proverbs 23, nine says, do not speak in the hearing of a fool for he will despise the good sense of your words. Some words just don't need to be said. The second thing is, remember how powerful words are. Use them carefully. Think about what we say. For me, I think that this has been a maturing spiritually and probably just age-wise. But I have come to understand how powerful words are. And I've been around enough people in my life in ministry to see how harmful words have been in people's lives. And so using words positively to build one another up, to encourage one another, is such an impar- important way of using our words. And we have such great ability to speak words of encouragement in this world today. Kind words soothe a soul. Kind words build one another up. If you thought about the words that you speak today, have you encouraged somebody today with the words that you've used? Words are powerful. Use them positively to build others up. Proverbs 10:11 says, "The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence." Proverbs 15:4 says, "A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perseverance in it breaks the spirit." Proverbs 12:18 says, "There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing." Proverbs 15, one and two, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. Lastly, our speech should not mimic the world's. And I think that's one of the big challenges that we have is because we're, to be, we're in this world, but we're not to be of this world, right? And oftentimes our behavior as followers of Christ in the area of speech and judgmentalism or envy and jealousy can align very much with the way the world behaves. But we are creatures of a living God, empowered by the Holy Spirit and called to be set apart to live differently. Proverbs 15:28 says, "The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things." Going back to Ephesians 4:29. Earlier in that chapter, Paul talks about putting on and putting off, putting on and putting off. Where to put on speech that builds one another up and encourages one another. Words are powerful. And I know that there are many people in this room that have been wounded by words. Simple words that have hurt. May we grow to understand that the power of the tongue, the power of our words, as harmful as they can be, they also can be used to lift one another up and build one another up. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that understands that and a staff that encourages one another and builds one another up. I pray that our church, our body of Christ here at McGregor will embrace that reality and that it makes a difference in the world because our speech, our language, the way we use words, is not to be like the world's, it is to be different. So I have plenty of time left, but I'm not gonna take it, just saying. But I am gonna close with a word of prayer um, and I do wanna challenge you Um, To think about the way you use your words. And maybe even this evening, maybe even this evening, find an opportunity to speak words of grace and encouragement into somebody's life.